0: Hi, this is Dion Begg from Butler Mortgage. We're currently ranked the number one mortgage brokerage in Ontario and number two in Canada. And much of our success is due to the fact that we help clients acquire multiple investment properties. If you'd like to talk with a mortgage advisor who specializes in investment property, you can reach me at 888-684-8326. To learn more about what's going on in the world of investment property financing, check out episode 23 of the Breakthrough Podcast, where I discuss the topic with Robin Sandy.
1: Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast, episode 48.
0: Hello and welcome to the Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast. We put this show together to inspire you and help you break through to the life that you want to live through the power of real estate investing. My name is Rob Brake, and here with me is the actual inventor of real estate cash flow, Sandy McKay.
1: Hey Rob, how's it going? was a good one. What did you do? That's a new one.
0: Well, I just I speak the truth. <laughs> how's it going?
1: That'll be a good invention. Hopefully, I can come up with something, something similar soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. You?
0: You just got to walk the walk now.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm excited. We've got a great uh, guest here with us, uh, Chris Shabib.
0: Yes, we do. And uh, Chris Shabib from Five Properties is joining us, and he won the Joint Venture of the Year Award this year at the Toronto Investor Forum. Today, he's going to speak with us about how to position yourself for long term success what strategies and philosophies you should employ, and of course, a little bit about joint ventures and forming successful partnerships. So thanks for being with us, Chris. Great to be on the show, guys. Thanks. So I guess first, we want to uh, talk about our free gift that we have over at our website, breakthroughreipodcast.ca. And that is the seven freedom activators that you can trigger in your property starting right now. That is a free report that uh, Mr. Real Estate Cashflow wrote for all of you and you can get it for free it's just a it's a guide on how to make more freedom out of your rental properties so that you're not always spending your time i guess managing and maintaining and you can get a little more freedom out of your investments so go on over there and get that what else do we have sandy
1: That's it. Yeah. And uh, of course, we want to recommend everyone to go ahead and give us uh, a five star review or any review, really. But I prefer I would prefer five stars uh, on uh, iTunes. And you can do that off. uh, I believe you can do it off any of your smartphones or uh, if you're on iTunes on your computer. And and also give us some insights, some uh, questions, anything you want on the show. We'd love to hear from anyone. It really helps us get the show out there, get better content for you guys and get more great speakers like Chris on. So really would be pleased to see some more reviews.
0: Yes, definitely. And speaking of reviews, we do have three more. I love these reviews, man. I love reading them out. So I'm going to do that right now. Um, The first one, it says, great Canadian investing content. It's by C Cottage. And he or she says, I love listening to podcasts to help with my investment business. And this is one of the top on my playlist. I love the Canadian content and the format of the show. It's a great mix of industry experts from different types of real estate investing. A few things I'd like to hear more of. So they've got a list here of what they want to hear more of, Sandy. So they would like to know, uh, number one, about investing in shorter-term vacation rentals. That's something we have not covered or talked about at all.
1: No, that'd be cool.
0: Yeah. Uh, number two, more stories from newbies. Someone who just did their first fix and flip and what they learned. Um, and the funny thing is, our next guest is someone, not their first fix and flip, but their first buy, fix, and refi. This is our newbie show for next month so that's coming up next month and number three is more of the funny outtakes at the end of the show keep up the great work guys (laughs) yeah i'm surprised to hear that many people listen to the end of the show but (laughs) i used to put on some outtakes from every episode and it just got to be too time consuming right to try and Find something funny and put it at the end and then put it all together. So lately I haven't been doing that, but yeah, those are funny. If you haven't heard them, go back and listen to the end of some of our shows. We have some pretty funny things on there. Yeah. I think the one the one that I liked best was where we put all the ums and ahs through the episode. And that's not even all of them, by the way. <laughs> I took them all and put them at the end of the show, just in a big lineup. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Uh, okay, so yeah, thank you for that one. Five stars. The next one says, great podcast. Five stars by Spence 15. Oh, suspense 15, sorry. He says, first podcast that has to do with Canadian real estate that can offer huge benefits. I love that they both are active investors and ask great questions. They bring a variety of guests on so you can see the different aspects of the industry. And the last one is Learning So Much, five stars by Bree Mix. And Bree says, I'm currently working on my real estate license and my boyfriend and I are looking into investing in real estate in the near future. Really enjoy the podcast and continue to recommend. So that is awesome. Thanks again to everybody and keep them coming. I love reading them on the show. This is great. I appreciate all of the reviews. Now, I just wanted to talk about something because – Last week, I broke some new ground. I actually had to use the assistance of the sheriff to evict one of my tenants. And, you know, that was pretty nerve-wracking to say the least. I was I was not feeling very good that morning and sort of had an upset stomach thinking about what was going to happen when I got there. And it actually went better than I was expecting. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with the process, when a tenant is late paying rent, then you serve them what in Ontario is called an N-4 notice. And from that point, the tenant has 14 days to come up good with the rent. So to pay it all all of it off. After that, you go to the landlord-tenant board with your copy of the notice. And you have to pay $170 in order to schedule a hearing or file an L-1. That's what that is. And after that point, the tenant becomes responsibility for that $170 on top of what they owe if they want to stay. So up to that point, up to this point where... Before I had gotten the sheriff to come out, we had already been to the landlord-tenant board three times in the one year with this couple. So they had to pay like an extra $510 for being late with the rent. So finally, you know, the last time they didn't even bother to come to the hearing, so we were granted the eviction. I I liked these tenants. They're actually, you know, pretty nice people. They just, I guess, had some bad luck and some bad times or whatever. But, you know, you owe it to your business, I think, to serve the notices on time when they're late. I think that people, maybe even if they don't understand, really, you have to just do it. You don't have to be mean about it or rude about it. But when it's time to serve notices, I recommend serving your notices on time so that this process doesn't take any longer than it has to. So I'm babbling on a bit, but I'm going to continue here. So they knew that they had been served the eviction notice, and I drove by the day before they were supposed to be out, and it didn't look like they were planning to leave at all, like no plans of it whatsoever. So I called them and explained that the sheriff was coming the next day with me and told them the process. And so that was when they started to offer me all the money that they owed, right? Of course, Sandy? Does that sound about right?
1: (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Were they actually
0: going to pay? Apparently. Automatically, though, they had all the money that they owed. Right then and there, they were willing to pay it and even give me a month's rent in advance. But up until that point, I'd heard nothing about it. So only when I showed up there with the sheriff, they suddenly had what they owed and then all this extra money. But it was tough. They were sort of pleading with me, offering the money while I was changing the locks and stuff. And it was pretty stressful. I guess my point to the story is that you have to stick to your convictions. Like these rental properties are our business. And now that they're out, I may have to go to small claims to collect what they owe. But I don't think that it would have been a good idea to let them stay and pay. You know, they had plenty of time to do that beforehand. And now we can find tenants that aren't forcing us to go to the landlord-tenant board every other month filing paperwork and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What What is your guys' experience with evicting tenants? Have you ever had to use a sheriff?
2: For me, I've never gotten to that point. I've certainly delivered N4s. But before that, the N4 period has been up. Um, I've received the money. But I couldn't agree more with what you said. I mean, you—it it is a business, especially when you're working with investors. But regardless, it's a business and you have to run it like a business. And, and I also agree with, you know, it's not about getting angry about it or being disrespectful. It's about running the process and doing what you have to do. And all parties were on board and clear about that from from the get-go. So it's only fair to run that process. And I also kind of concur with your gut instinct that you know when they're offering the money at the end, it's almost further evidence that you're really not on the same page because that should have come much earlier, and the fact that it only came when the sheriff was present really just illustrates that you're really not dealing with the right tenant, I guess
0: yeah, I agree, and I mean that and and having been the first time like I've evicted lots of tenants, but it's never gotten to that point where I've actually had to go with the sheriff. I've always done it in mediation at the landlord tenant board just you know they'll say well you know i can i can come up with the money next month or next week or whatever and you know when i kind of poke holes in their schedules and that kind of thing usually we end up just saying look you know just agree to leave and that's how it ends up like i've done that a few times so this was a little bit different though one of yeah. those ones that's kind of stressful what about you sandy have you ever had to do that
1: never had the sheriff involved no definitely a lot of enforce. and we've had one that was that's been a, a struggle for sure, right? It was still a tenant of ours and longer story with him, but he's, he's come up with the money eventually and it's been okay. You know, as long as he keeps paying, I guess it's okay. It's not a terrible tenants in other ways. He's pretty clean and everything. There's been some struggles, never to the point of getting a share for both. I mean, I, mean I, I can't argue with with your points though, for sure. If they're Especially if they have the money at the end, that kind of shows that, you know, there's a little bit of a disrespect there probably from, from their side.
0: Yeah, I guess you're right. And you know, but before I actually filed with the sheriff, I I waited 3 days upon their request. They said, "Look, we're going to pay up and we're going to get good here. You know, can you give us another 3 days before you file with the sheriff?" And I did, you know. Mm-hmm. But then those 3 days came and went. So, like I think I think being reasonable is important too. Like you can't just stick it to people because that's what you're able to do. You know, I think that there has to be a certain amount of reason and logic on your side as well to be somewhat understanding. Like you do need to file those forms on time, the N4s. As soon as the Absolutely. day after the rent is due comes and goes, then you file that. Just because that's the right thing to start your process and make sure that you don't fall behind. But, uh Okay, good to hear, guys. I'm glad I'm glad to hear I'm the only one that's had to do that. <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's get into our interview. How about that? Sounds good.
2: Let's do it. I got a
1: uh, brief intro here for, uh, for Chris. So Chris, throughout his career in software development and product management, Chris worked over 20 years to build his real estate investing expertise, primarily through forced appreciation, buying, improving, and selling properties in, Can- in Ontario and California, and leveraging a background in general contracting and subsequently enterprise product strategy and development. Uh, Chris has created consistent profits through multiple real estate strategies, and today Chris is the owner and managing director of Five Properties, Inc., and Chris in creating opportunities for wealth generation, which is shared with funding partners. And yeah, welcome again, Chris. Glad to have you here. I think uh, this will be a fun interview.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Did I miss anything in the intro, or is that sum it up? No, um, I, I think that's a uh, great job. Thank you. Okay, Cool.
1: Uh, so how did you start out in real estate
2: investing?
1: Can you give us some stories or anything, background on that?
2: Yeah, for sure. You know what? I, I think um, looking back, there were a few kind of major influencers. One is, you know, I grew up in a house where we were constantly renovating the house. And, and one of my earliest memories, in fact, was coming downstairs, waking up on a Saturday morning, coming downstairs. I'm like eight or nine years old. And there's a huge hole in the living room wall. And it made this, this big impression on me. Obviously there's now I'm looking outside in the, in the middle of our living room and we were putting in a fireplace. Little did I know I was going to be heavily, heavily involved in the labor required to build that fireplace. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those early kind of memories that I have that as I look back, it was clearly an influencer. We were forcing appreciation, although we never called it that, but that's what we were doing with our primary residence at the time, making improvements constantly to the house. Not explicitly to sell it, but inevitably when we sold, that equated to some profits. So that was kind of you know one of those early influences for me. And I would say another one, and and this is kind of pretty early on too, but in my teen years, I had some friends that were doing. It's almost it was definitely real estate investing, buy and hold, but it was a little less business oriented, a little more homegrown, I guess, in retrospect. But that made a lasting impression on me too. So those were kind of inspirations, I guess, to get into investing. And I, you know, then I kind of get into my adult life and, you know, I had, I've had three careers so far. I've been a a carpenter and contractor building, you know, additions and homes and renovations. And then I went back to school, realized that I didn't want to be a contractor for the rest of my years and went back to school for computer science and went into technology. and, And, um, while I was doing those two careers over several years, I was doing investing on the side. Um, and it was, you know, that investing. For a number of years, I would say ten or fifteen years of that investing was really driven from those two primary influences that I mentioned: the the renovations we did growing up, and knowing a couple of people um, in my immediate network as I was young that did well in real estate. and And that and it's kind of funny, right? Like when I think about that notion of, I know they did well. It was just a fairly vague notion for me at that young age. I just knew it was there and it was something that I was interested in pursuing in some way. And so for the first, like I said, 10 or 15 years of you know the kind of part-time on the side investing that I was doing, it was really driven from those two things. And it wasn't until a fair bit later on that I went to a weekend conference And what happened there was really for me was a whole bunch of new information about the business of investing, not kind of the homegrown part time investing, but the business of it. And that really kind of pulled back the curtain for me. And that was a turning point for sure. So that was, uh, kind of, I guess one of those, another one of those big thresholds for me in terms of, you know, how investing uh, evolved for me over, over the years.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. I think there, there is a majority probably out there that sort of had that influence of the accidental or sort of cowboy <laughs> investing, right? They didn't realize that that's what they were actually doing. But then turns out, in retrospect, that that's exactly what it was. Cool. Oh, that's great. Yeah.
2: And the thing, too, is um, I guess it surprises me a little bit looking back that it was 10 or 15 years before I kind of went to that conference. And then it was my wife and I sitting down and saying, geez, you know, like, we love doing investing. And that's where we've been making chunks of money. You know, not just paying the bills every month, but kind of building wealth. And that was a turning point for us. And it, it just surprises me that, it, you know, uh, everybody hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But I, I wish I had seen that sooner. Cool. Yeah. So you have been through two economic downturns in your life. What have you learned? You know, it, it's a great question. I think the, the main thing that I learned there is that market change is inevitable. And it's not something to kind of resist. Or to fear, but rather to know and anticipate and embrace. And that's probably, you know, it's a fairly straightforward notion, but the experience of having gone through that is something that kind of is ingrained in me and influences my investing decisions and my strategies on a kind of a day to day basis today. So, you know, being able to, you know, so what do you do with that experience? I think it punctuates for me the importance of setting the property up, the investment up for. Uh, strong cash flow from day one. So that's something that we really try to emphasize in our businesses. We want to see some strong cash flow because uh, strong cash flow with a good product because those products, I believe, can weather the storm, right? If there's a market correction or if there's an interest rate change, those two things, having a good rental product and strong cash flow will get you through that so that you can see you know more appreciation on the other side of whatever market correction might be happening.
0: Cool. Um, So do you want to tell us why you like residential investing?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's three main things there. There's control, diversification, and affordability. So the control, I mean, when we look at an investment, we tend to evaluate it on four criteria. There's security, control, the amount of effort required, and then ultimately the ROI. And control in real estate investing, or sorry, residential investing, I should say, for me is very high just because I come from a contracting background from way back that first career. And so having control over that asset and maybe forcing appreciation through renovation is a very comfortable thing, more so in residential than it is for, in commercial for me in particular. So that's kind of the control piece and the diversification. And there's a school of thought in uh, commercial investing that says that, um, you know, I love commercial, I love, you know, a 50-unit building because there's one roof and one furnace uh, and 50 tenants. And I I completely concur with that. However, that one furnace could cost you thirty thousand to replace. <laughs> you know, so the other side of that coin, and and the other school of thought says, you know, if you take those same fifty tenants and spread them out out over twenty five duplexes, you know, your furnace is going to cost you two or three grand to replace, and they're not all going to go at once. So there's kind of a diversification of your investments across properties, which I I think. Depends on the lens you look through, but I like that aspect of residential personally. And then affordability, I mean, it's, as we know, the affordability of residential is, I mean, even with strong appreciation happening over the last few years, it's still an affordable market to get into, which I think is important. It's kind of a broader base of investors that you can work with. And yeah, more accessibility, I guess, lower barrier to entry.
0: Yeah, I agree with the diversification. And also, you know, but in a way, uh, market diversification as well, you know, is something else to consider. I've been recently just sort of thinking about how all of my properties are in Oshawa and thinking about expanding into some other places, right? So a little more diversification that way
2: very true and and with residential to your point you get more granularity over that diversification so you could easily start to spread out into another market without you know having that giant fifty unit purchase mm-hmm. uh, in order to do so so yeah totally agree
0: although I do remember Quentin de Souza telling a story I think it was last winter where I don't know it was like forty below February something like that he had three furnaces go in two days I think <laughs> oh really yeah um, <laughs> so uh I guess that sort of transitions us into this next question of how do you calculate and manage risk then in these investments?
2: Yeah, so the way you know I think about risk is, you know, obviously there's no way to eliminate it. You can't completely um, kind of take risk off the table. It's more about identifying areas of significant risk and then mitigating or planning toward those areas so that you can manage them properly. And for me, those mitigation strategies change based on. The specifics of the investment. For example, if we're going to reno either in a flip or or a refi, then we'll look at, you know, it's, and we run everything through our our spreadsheets and our templates to analyze the deal. But you start to look at the major variables, and one is the rental size and cost and the renovation size, just to dig into that in a little bit more detail. You know, I don't typically get into fieldstone foundations and century homes and Raising them up and kind of you know you know lifting the house up and moving it or lifting the house up and increasing the height the height of the basement it's there's just a little bit too much unknown in there for my comfort level. However, you know if I look at a renovation of medium size, which is you know new everything, new bathrooms, new kitchens, taking out supporting walls, new new headers and new flooring, new everything all throughout, then there's not too much in there that's going to surprise me. So in the Risk mitigation bucket, I look at the size of the renovation as one of those major variables. And that relates directly to the risk associated with the cost of that renovation. So less unknowns, more predictability around cost. So renovation size, when you're looking at either a refi, a fix and refi or a flip and then looking at the after repair value. So it's, you know, those are your two big kind of variables, right? The renovation size and cost. And then what is it going to be worth when I'm done? either because I'm going to refi or because I'm going to sell it. And so, yeah, and I mean, the third variable, which is less of a variable, but still very relevant to look at, I think, is market conditions. So is it, you know, is it going to continue to stay steady or increase in in value over the time of the flip or over the time of the renovation? So, you know, the way we look at that is, you know, try to identify those major areas of risk and scenario build around those so that you can understand your spectrum of possibilities through the project. So, what's my worst case? What's my best case? And, you know, what's my uh, happy medium and, and probably my target as I go through it?
0: So, what is it exactly? Do you want to give us like a general overview of your business? What is it exactly that you're doing? Is it a single family home flips mostly or what kind of uh, projects are you into?
2: Yeah. So, it's generally speaking, it's, it's all residential first. So, it's all four doors are under. That's what we focus on. So I haven't uh, branched into commercial at any time, actually, in my past. In in terms of terms of investing, I did commercial contracting, but that was a different deal. And so it's singles and doubles mainly. And so we'll do change of use, take a single and turn it into a duplex. We'll do we do some rent to owns, and opportunistically we look at flips. Although when I was kind of investing earlier on in that kind of informal phase that I talked about earlier, and that was 10 or 15 years, it was more flips and primary residence. So my wife and I would move into a house, we would gut it, we would do all the work ourselves, and then we would sell it. And, you know, flips are great for transactional revenue, but I like to focus more on the buy and holds just because of that longer term wealth building aspect of it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, flips are fun, but... uh I mean, and I really like that strategy of moving in. I I wish that I could do that. Unfortunately, I had my kids before I was sort of into the investment stage where that would work. Right. And the wife's like, "We're not just going to move every year, you know." <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that sounds uh, really cool. Okay, so yeah, just because I we were sort of talking about um, the risks and that, and we were, I wasn't exactly clear on what it was that you guys were doing. So that's great. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, no problem.
1: Yeah, so why don't, we, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about partnerships and that. So you've been a property expert and a money partner, both. What did you learn from both sides? You know, the property expert side where you're doing a lot of the work and the, the more, I guess, more hands-off money partner side.
2: Yeah, so I, when I was in California, just to give a little bit of background on that, my wife and I moved down there because of technology. Actually, we were both in tech at the time and moved to just between San Francisco and San Jose. And, and we bought a home down there and flipped it while we lived in it, just like we just mentioned. And at that time, I was also a money partner for student rentals back here in Ontario. So kind of simultaneously being on both sides of the table uh, during that particular phase. But I think the main thing for me, the main takeaway was just being able to relate to both perspectives, which is always important, right? Being able to see through somebody else's lens is, is always important, especially when you're dealing with partnerships, I find. And, you know, so the When I was sitting on the money partner side of the table, what was really important to me was, one, I needed to believe in real estate, and two, I needed to be able to trust the partner that I was working with to be able to look out for both of our interests. And that translates directly into when I'm the property, the investment expert, because I can relate exactly to what the money partner is feeling on the other side of the table, which, which again, I I just think is an important piece. And I guess the other thing I would say is that – You know, there's because of that perspective and the ability to see both sides, like there's the respect for both sides. On the money partner side, I mean, it's an incredible situation, I found, to be on the money side of that partnership and having your money work for you as hard as it does in real estate with no effort. So, because I was in California, you know, my hand was forced. I I wasn't able to participate in any of what was going on in the properties back here in Ontario. And so the effort was zero and, and real estate was doing what it does when you work with a property, which was making a bunch of money for us. And conversely, you know, being a property expert, you got to respect all the work that goes into strategizing on what is the right deal, putting that deal together, marketing for the tenants, managing the tenants. Like, there's a lot of work that goes in, especially over a longer term hold. And so I guess you know, that summary, there's healthy respect for both sides of the equation in that partnership, I guess, and as part of what I learned. And so, what's the biggest value you bring to a joint venture partnership? well I, I think you know certainly there's you know having sat on both sides of the table, there's you know being a, a licensed carpenter helps you know so that, and being through downturns, those things help. But I guess probably one of the biggest values, I think is being able to strategize and know how to set a property up for positive cash flow right from the beginning, but also you know, being able to be that partner that is going to look out for long-term wealth building. right? So if I were to do it all over again, when I was in California, I would have invested in more properties with a partner that was going to turn those investments into refinance them and turn them into more properties, if that makes sense. So one of the biggest values is is having that longer term perspective to be able to say, we're going to buy one property in the beginning with a partner, but as soon as we can in three to five years, we're going to refinance and turn that into two and rinse and repeat and build that portfolio so that the partner is kind of building some serious wealth over time.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there I find that don't really understand the value of that side of the joint venture partnership. just. The ability to identify the deal that's going to work and make the right moves and do the right renos and all that kind of stuff. I believe there is a lot of people that don't get that. But you know what? I guess when you're working with the right people, they do. So that's the important thing.
2: Yeah, I totally agreed.
0: So why is being what you refer to as a walking paradox, quote unquote, essential to being a good investor?
2: Yeah, so it's the more time goes by, the more experience I have, the more I kind of, you know, everything, few things look like, a few things kind of equate to binary to me, like ones or zeros are pure black and white. Everything kind of becomes spectrums with gradients on it, uh, if you will. So and that's where the paradox comes in. And that, you know, in order to be, I find, at least for me, in order to be successful in business and real estate investing, you have to be aggressive and at the same time patient. And you have to be pragmatic and numbers-driven, and at the same time, you have to keep your eye open and, and be very creative and have some vision toward what is possible. And at the same time, like there's a bunch of these kind of paradoxes. I find you have to be logical, and you have to also be able to use your gut feeling, right? Anybody who's invested for any period of time that uh, I found at least always says the same thing: If you pull up in front of a house and your gut tells you something's wrong, don't do it. You know, and it, and don't even bother with a spreadsheet, don't bother with analysis. You've got a gut feeling and you got to listen to that. So there's always this, the two ends of that spectrum, and it's striking the right balance in between those two ends. I find that as I kind of progress along and as I watch other people that I find have achieved a level of success, they're good at striking that balance in the right way at the right time, which you know, I think only experience kind of gets you.
0: I like that. That's really interesting. I actually never heard anybody put it that way, but it makes a lot of sense and uh really cool. You know, um something that I've never thought about before.
2: Yeah, kind of an interesting thing to consider, right? As you're uh out there executing and strategizing on what you're gonna do.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, um even last our last interview with Dylan Lentz, who is offering a really, really great service with Neighborly for tenant screening said to us on the show, he said, 90% of people that use their gut to choose a tenant will be successful, (laughs) you know, will get good tenants. Yeah. So I mean, it's just it's funny where you've got like, that is the paradox right there, right?
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, cool. What objections do you find that you get from money JV partners, or I guess, or JV partners in general? And how do you address them?
2: Yeah. So there's two main ones for me. One is, and this is an interesting one too, one is, is this too good to be true? And that's an interesting one because I think it speaks to the industry that is real estate investing and, and how little awareness there is around the industry in general for the mass public kind of thing. It tends, as pervasive as real estate is, we all live in real estate in one way or another, It the business of real estate investing is still relatively unknown, I find and as I sit down with investors and we model out the triangulation of wealth building between monthly cash flow and mortgage pay down and market appreciation, and we do that in a conservative way and we model it out over time. And we look at how that might cascade and waterfall and build and accrue over time, the wealth building that, that model shows tends to kind of for somebody who is new to investing as a wealth building strategy, makes them kind of recoil a little bit sometimes and say, geez, is this too good to be true? Those numbers are so much stronger than my GSE or so much stronger than my mutual funds, what's the catch? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I find that to be an interesting kind of thing to work through with a potential partner because for the right partner, in the same way that I described when I went on the the conference weekend for me, that was like the curtain pulling back. When you pull back that uh, curtain with the right partner, there's an excitement there that is, you know, it's undeniable. It's one of the favorite, my favorite parts of my job. And with the wrong partner, that suspicion, it's just not a right, the right fit. They're not ready to do that for whatever very valid reason they have. It's just not a good fit. And so you learn that very quickly, I guess. And either it's a good fit and, and you're having a great conversation or, hey, this isn't, you know, it's not um, the risk tolerance isn't there or the timing's wrong or whatever is going on, right? But the most important thing I find is just to be transparent and set the tone for the partnership. By being transparent and just kind of opening up everything you can and saying, this is exactly how it works. You make money here, I make money here, and this is exactly how the partnership will go. And the second kind of objection that I see probably most common would be, could I do this myself? Mm-hmm. Which which is an interesting one, too, where for me, if you know that question typically gets answered fairly quickly, and if the answer is yes, you do want to and you can do this yourself then i usually say that's awesome how can i help you know can i give you some tools can i can i do this for you or you're going to have a great time i love it you sound like you will so all the best kind of thing and the other way that can go is you know i could do it myself if i had the time but i don't have the time which is quite common right people are I've got jobs and families and the business of real estate investing is a very time consuming one and not to be taken lightly as we've all uh, everybody's got their stories. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so that's the second one. And again, it's just about for me dealing with that as a concern with a potential investor is really just about trying to understand what's best for them. And if a partnership is the best thing for them, then that will come out through that conversation of, you know, well, if you could do this, you know, from a skill set standpoint, then that's great, but your time's not going to allow it or you don't want to sacrifice that time. And so let's kind of progress to the next step in the conversation around a partnership.
0: Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. I like that. You should, you should do some coaching on that kind of stuff as well.
2: Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I may do that.
0: <laughs> Go ahead, Sandy.
1: Yeah, I was gonna ask what are the what are the most important personal characteristics you think when it comes to real estate investing in general?
2: Yeah, so I think uh I just touched on a couple of them, but just to to kinda uh highlight them, I think many would concur with this, many that have done investing would say resilience has gotta be one of those number one character traits that you have to kind of adopt and really solidify your resolve around because there's there always going to be unknowns, right? In every deal, there's unknowns. In every buy and hold, there's unknowns. And, and things are going to come at you from left field. And the timing with which they come at you is not always going to be ideal or perfect. And so resilience to be able to work through that and also an eye toward vision, right? Like it can be easy during some of those uh, challenging times to lose track of the purpose and the vision that you set out with when you <laughs> when you started in real estate investing. So I think that resilience helps you kind of work through some of those tougher periods and also kind of keep your eye on the larger prize, the purpose and the vision uh, from a higher level.
0: Well, I was just going to ask you, like, uh, you must have an example of one of those times where, you know, you've practiced that resilience. I know I've got a bunch, you know, I'm wanting to just throw my hands up in the air and quit in the middle of a project kind of thing, right? (laughs) Did you have one of those kind of stories that you can share?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, you, you mentioned a good point and every project of Any kind of size that I've done, there's always that point in the middle of the project where it's almost like the apex of a corner or a tipping point in the project where you kind of feel like, holy geez, now everything's torn apart and I haven't started putting it back together yet. What have I got myself into uh, kind of point in the project? Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of those times for me was... We had uh, a duplex. One was filled. Unit two was in the process of being filled. And it was, uh, you mentioned Quentin and the furnaces. It was actually last winter that this happened. And the way, the the way the events unfolded, the first thing I got was a text from tenant in unit number one saying, I think something's going on in unit number two because the windows are icing up on the inside of the unit, (laughs) which, you know, got my, uh, got my wheels turning pretty fast trying to understand how it could that possibly be happening. The one thing I could come up with is maybe a pipe burst, and that was creating a leak. Once I got there, it wasn't too tricky to see what happened. There was a a clog in the drain going to the street that happened in unit one. And because Unit 1 and Unit 2 share that main drain going out to the street, the water took the path of least resistance, which was to back up and then go into Unit 2 and started to uh, flood that unit. Mm. And that's where you know, we had the heat on in there, but it was such a cold winter that uh, the condensation that was coming from that moisture, and it wasn't actually even that much water that backed up, but the condensation started to ice up the window. So unraveling that mystery wasn't too hard once I got on site. But solving the problem was where resilience really had to kick in. So mm-hmm. that went uh, you know, the first thing we did, we called the plumber in. He tried to get to that clog by snaking the drain from several different locations, and he couldn't get to it. And so the only other alternative was to try and use a clean-out that was closer to the clog. But there was a water backup on top of that clean-out, if that makes sense. So there was pressure on that clean-out. It wasn't an empty pipe behind it. Right. Um, and so, I mean... By the time we get to the point where the plumber is going to the clean out, it's about eleven thirty at night. And, you know, we have got to fix this, right? Because the unit one can't use their water and unit two has still got water in it. So the plumber is very gingerly trying to unscrew that clean out and drain the water that's in there. And where the the levee broke, so to speak, is when he accidentally backed that clean out off just a little too far. And one of those moments you never forget, that thing came undone with a pressure that i was not expecting really <laughs> oh man god bless that plumber because he suffered the brunt of the pressure of that water coming out yeah that, that was a tricky one and so that was a fairly big cleanup again we're 11 30 at night so a caution to those that say i want to be a landlord <laughs> you got to be ready for some of those situations uh to get that text, to get on site, to troubleshoot, and then to see it through to completion.
0: I thought you were going to tell us the story of the um, having to put on skates to get across to the cleanout or something <laughs> from the water freezing on the floor.
2: You know, I wasn't that. Uh, I wasn't sure what I was in for as I was driving down there. That's for sure.
0: Well, uh, yeah, you know that doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> you know, I've had the same thing happen from the tenants up in one unit backing up the drain so that it flooded the basement. Same things happened. Really, Yeah. Huh? Yeah, crazy small world, eh? Yeah,
2: very true. very true.
0: I'm sure we're not the only ones.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, so Chris, what, what, all this experience you have, you have obviously a lot, a lot of different good and bad throughout your career in this. What kind of advice can you share for new investors? What would you tell someone just getting started?
2: Well, I, you know, one of the first things I would recommend is to get education. And the reason I say that is, you know, I mentioned hindsight is 2020, and had I gotten an education on investing specifically earlier on, I probably would have realized um the opportunity that I was actually engaged in but didn't fully recognize how great the opportunity was, I would have recognized it a lot sooner. And so that education, you know, again it's a balance, right? You don't want to get lost in theory for years and you don't want to start taking action with no idea what you're doing. And so for me that balance is probably characterized by you know, if I was a new investor today, you know, I would embrace some of the information that's out there. Your guys' podcast is incredible. You can take it on the go, listen to it in the car, on the go train, whatever. And there's some really great groups around where you can get enough education that you can understand the fundamentals of making money in real estate specifically, and some of the different strategies, and then start to take some action based on that, on some of that foundation and some of those fundamental understandings of how investing can be a very successful wealth-building business, I guess. So education probably being the number one thing I would say. If I were a new investor today, that would be the first thing I would jump into.
0: Yeah, good. And you know, I've always been a huge fan of other podcasts and audiobooks. I find just for me, like when I was at the point where I wanted to just start soaking that stuff up, it worked so perfectly. Other people like reading, but whatever it is, get out there and and like uh, Chris said, go to some seminars or read some books, just start learning. But don't learn too much. Like, you know, take yeah. some action steps. Just uh, maybe read one book and then do something. Get off your butt.
2: Yeah, very true. It's got to be that balance, right?
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I probably started out with a little bit less knowledge than I should have for sure, too. But I found for me, it was more see, and I learned, oh, I can't even remember the name of the podcast, but I mean, that was where it, I started out, you know, trying to find private deals and assign them to other investors. So the guy's motto was move at the speed of instruction. So I started at the beginning, and he just went step by step by step. This is what you do, and so every I would just follow it and do it. You yeah. know, not knowing what to do next, but just knowing, hey, I got that next one in my phone, and I'll listen to it tomorrow, kind of thing, right?
2: So, ah, uh, that's interesting. Yeah,
0: so uh, it's good advice. Good advice. Get out there and learn. Okay, so what do you think's next for you in your business?
2: You know, I think buy and holds, looking at possible change of use, with a special emphasis. I mentioned this before, but probably uh, even more so, emphasis on you know having good rental products with good cash flow in each investment. Just because you know, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, changes are inevitable, mm-hmm. and I think it's just really important as the market is aggressive and can be a little bit. There's so much momentum in the market right now; it can get. A little bit easy to get carried away. I think it's more important than ever for new investors, existing investors, whoever, to buy right and make sure that that the properties are cash flowing. So that'll that'll really be the emphasis uh, as we head into 2017.
0: Cash flow for your investors—that's pretty attractive. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> so now, those people that are interested in that kind of thing, like uh, making a bunch of money, how can they get in touch with you?
2: Yeah, for sure. So I can always uh, learn more about uh, myself and our business at fiveproperties.com. And that is spelled out. So F-I-V-E properties.com. Or email me directly, chris at fiveproperties.com. Yeah, those are probably two of the best ways to uh, to get in touch for those interested.
0: Awesome, Chris. Well, thanks for being here again. I appreciate everything that you've shared with us. And for those of you who did not catch that, as usual, uh, all of Chris's contact information will be in the show notes for this episode number 48. So, you know, thanks again, Chris. Uh, really appreciate it.
2: Thanks very much, guys. I love to uh, love being on the show.
0: Uh, Sandy, you want to tell the people how they can get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you can always email us through the show, info at do Otherwise, feel free to text or reach out to me uh, through phone at 416-567-3866.
0: And um, so what is it that, Sandy, I know we don't really talk about ourselves all that much, but what is it that, uh, you know, who should be calling you?
1: Probably not everybody. <laughs> some people, uh, if, if you want to talk about real estate, mostly in the Hamilton surrounding area, uh, happy to help out that way. I, I've had a few people reach out, to even in in other areas. Uh, I uh, we own some properties in in other areas of the GTA. So I mean, if you need help with, um, you know, someone to add to your power team or anything like that, you know, mortgage brokers, uh, contractors, that sort of thing. Happy to help out in any way in that. In that sense, of course, I'm also a real estate agent in Hamilton, work with a lot of investors. So, we would love to chat some more with anyone looking to get involved out, out in real estate in this area. And, you know, I we do work with joint venture partners too, a little bit. You know, if we'd have enough conversations around that, really anything to do with real estate at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? I'm just going to say ditto. If people are looking to invest in the Oshawa area, you can reach me at 289. 289- nine two seven zero four six four again the same as sandy if people want to talk about real estate talk about partnerships talk about just finding some good cash flowing rental properties whatever it is yeah give me a call or reach out to us at info at breakthrough ca. okay everyone thanks a lot have a good night
2: thanks guys